Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 1. We're going to reflect upon the passage of Scripture that we looked at on Christmas Eve and draw some, I believe, important reminders for the culture in which we live, the call of God upon our lives, the ministry that we must, must have in this lost and dying world, and most importantly, the celebration of the light of the world and our King, Jesus. Pray with me, please. Our Heavenly Father, as we reflect upon the text this morning, I pray that You'd give us understanding and insight. I pray that as we make careful application, it might resonate with Your people and remind us of our charge, our call, and the things that matter most in life and ministry. And I pray that as we reflect upon this time of year in which we remember and commemorate the birth of a Savior, that we would each and every year glean more and more truth and reality from the Scripture, a greater understanding and appreciation for all that was transpiring greater awareness of the depth of the Scripture and the light of men. And most importantly, Father, at a time like this, uh, in the year in which we commemorate Your birth, that it would resonate us on a very deep and personal level as we offer our worship, a worship that goes beyond the words that uh, we sing, it goes beyond the Scripture that we read, it translates into how we live in this godless culture and age, and how we pass on our faith to the next generation, this generation of children who's just gathered on this platform. I pray, again, as we focus on a couple of particular truths in this passage of Scripture, through the ministry of Your Spirit, You would speak Give us guidance, you grant wisdom and understanding, and then in some way, we might find and experience a continued growth in this season of Christmas as we comprehend in a deeper and greater way all that transpired at that time. So bless us as we spend some time in Your Word. Encourage Your people as we gather for this brief time this morning, and find us always celebrating the birth of a King, the light of the world, our Savior. Jesus, for it's in His name we pray. Amen. As we told you on Friday evening, the purpose of John's writing in this Gospel of John is writing as an evangelist and in some ways as an apologist to take much of the wisdom that was taking place in the world and much of the pursuit of knowledge that was happening in that particular time frame and culture and to bring it to a reality that there could be no mistake about what really mattered most. John, in his gospel, towards the end of writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, the things contained in this gospel of John, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name. I believe that what John was uh, driving at was a life that went beyond just a, an ascent or a knowledge of salvation, but, but a life that was encompassed by this 
Christ, a a, a life that found meaning in this Christ, a, a life that finds purpose and the source of ultimate reality, a life that sustains us in the difficult and darkest times of life. And as John the Evangelist writes all of this to point all toward Christ, he begins in chapter one of his gospel by focusing on the Word. Again, if you'd follow along with me in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. While we repeat some of the things that we had mentioned on Friday evening in our Christmas Eve service, I want to take it to a little deeper level and find out the significance of this passage of Scripture to the culture at large and the connection that they would automatically make to the words that he writes in the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning, in timeless eternity, always and forever, the second person of the Godhead was the Word. And the Word was with God, Christ being with God from the beginning, the second person of the Godhead, and the Word was God in full divine essence. From the beginning of time, our Savior, Jesus Christ, was an eternal being. He existed in a relationship of intimacy with the Father, face to face, literally, according to the text. And John makes no mistake in pointing out clearly that this Word is God, a distinct person, but with all of the character traits and essence of God our Father. It says to us that He, meaning the Word, was in the beginning with God, this eternal existence of Christ being outlined for us. There are many cults today, pseudo-Christian religions, who will tell us that somehow Christ was a created being, somehow He was begotten, somehow He was an afterthought to address the realities of the world. But make no mistake, the message of the gospel that John is trying to present to us must include the eternal nature of the Son of God. It must include that He was God in the flesh. It must include these most particular things that John speaks of in the context here, Jesus Christ indeed, the second person of the Trinity coming into this world, according to verse 3, that He had created. It gives new meaning to the book Genesis in which we see the unfolding of creation. Christ was there. And in both a positive and negative way, John makes it very clear that there was not anything made that was made outside of Christ negatively, and positively, all things were made through Him. Through this divine fiat of the Trinity of God, all things came into existence. And that is significant meaning, particularly for the culture who would hear the words that John was writing in his gospel. 
The spoken reality in the mind and, and reality that ruled the world was embodied in the Christ child. It was embodied in the second person of the Trinity. And there is no life apart from that word. Look at verse 4. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When when John writes that in him this word Christ as we know him to be was life, he was talking about everything that was ever created. There was no creation outside of Christ. But, but when he talks about life, he is talking about more than just this menial existence under this temporary realm in which we are born and live a, a, a certain expanse of life and then we die. And as he talks about this life, he is talking about something bigger than this world as we know it. Of course, there is a spiritual component to this life that he speaks of. And just this this God, this Word, creates and preserves the culture and the cosmos by the very words out of his mouth. It is Christ alone that creates spiritual life in those who hear and preserves them throughout life and this short existence under the sun for eternity in that better day in which we indeed see Him. He was the light of men and ultimately made available to all people. And the very words that He chooses here helps us understand how He was made available to all people. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want to remind you of the important lesson in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It will not overtake it. The light wins. But we live in a world of darkness. And sometimes in this temporal existence, it appears that darkness wins. Sometimes in the context of our culture that's lost its way and is spinning out of control, we get the sense that darkness is winning. John makes it very clear in his gospel that darkness never wins. It is the light of the world. It is the Savior of the world. It is the life that comes through Christ alone that wins. In spite of Genesis chapter 3 and what I perceive as a hostile takeover of this creation, where Satan wreaks havoc through the, the temptation and the ultimate sinning and fall of Adam and Eve, and Satan in his domain and, and, and within his dominion fights and, and chafes at the message of the gospel. In spite of that hostile takeover of sin and this world of brokenness in which we live, the light will not be overtaken with the darkness. Some of you need to hear that this morning. I need to hear that from time to time. It's so easy to get caught up in how how far off the rails our culture and society has become. But everything's going to be okay. We must look at much of what John says, not in some temporal setting, but in an eternal state. But there are applications to our temporal setting. There is that hope that we cling to, that confident expectation that we win, Christ wins, the gospel wins, goodness wins, the light of men wins. And yet, we're in a battle. And it's a battle with darkness, and we'll, we'll, we'll address it a little bit later on. But before we do, we just remind ourselves this darkness will not overtake 
the light. So you find this word, word, over and over and over in the first five verses of this Gospel of John. It is a word that has been spoken of and written about, thought through, and a doctrinal theological positions built upon from the beginning of time. In fact, probably logos, this, this word for word in the Scripture, is one of the most written and debated and contemplated words in John's gospel. And I still don't believe we've even scratched the surface and the complexity and the fullness of the meaning of that logos, that, that, that word. But as John is writing, and the particular culture in which he was writing, that, that word, word meant something. That word logos meant something. And it meant something in the pagan culture. It meant something in that religious culture in Judaism. And it will take on a new and entirely different meaning as John writes it and pens it within the context of the gospel of John. This concept of logos or word is a crucial and far-reaching um, word in, in, in all of Christian thought, in all of philosophical thought, and in particularly the culture that John is writing, there was this Greek philosophy that acknowledged that there must be something bigger. There must be some foundational truth to the world. There must be something beyond what we see. There must be some universal divine reason or mind of God that makes sense out of our world. And the Greek philosophers were, were bent on finding that. They were driven to, to reason and to think through. But unfortunately, in much of that Greek philosophy of the day and, and virtually all philosophies that we wrestle with today, that's why Paul warns us in Colossians, by the way, not to be taken captive by vain philosophies. We are trying to make sense out of this world and find this, this notion of ultimate reality, but somehow we are only doing it through faulty human reasoning. These Greek philosophers, they, they placed a, a heavy emphasis on the cognitive mind and the process of reasoning, and they placed an equally important uh, emphasis on the vehicle of language. Words mattered. It's difficult for us to understand in a postmodern world where words have no inherent meaning. At least that's what we're told, but we know that they do. And as he addresses this Greek philosophy and this faculty of reason and using the vehicle of language, this Greek philosophy was assigned with or obsessed with answering the ultimate questions of reality. Why is there something rather than nothing? How did we get here? What is, what is happening? And as they were searching for the ultimate truth, they were looking for some final reality it was invisible that lied behind everything that they observed in this world. And seeking to find that reality, they would uh, pursue truth and, and, and ethics and morality and so many other different things, trying to find an organizing principle, in essence, to just make sense out of life. I believe that implanted in every human being is this drive to just make sense out of life. Why are we here? What is the point? What is the purpose? And John addresses that in John chapter 1. Fortunately, in Greek philosophy, and particularly in the philosophies of today, this organizing principle, this 
perceived mind of God is some impersonal, lifeless, abstract force. There's something, we just don't know what it is. And even if they call it the mind of God, they are not pursuing God, at least not the God of the Bible, but pursuing answers to the ultimate reality. Now, the Hebrews were a little bit different, and and they saw logos, or word, language, the Word of God, as being a personal force. But John is writing now, using a term so familiar to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, those practicing Judaism, so familiar with the Gentile world and Greek philosophy, he uses that word to bring everything together and to give the greatest answers to life. In fact, he says about that word, it's a person. He's a noble person. He's an eternal person. He is a person that created all things. He is the person that is the source of everything in life. He is and only is the one that can bring light and shine light and make sense of what is often called the ultimate reality. It reminds me of, of, of Paul's ministry on Mars Hill, the Areopagos in Acts chapter 17, where he goes to this place of, of learning and, and begins a debate with the, with the scholars and the philosophers of that day. And as he debates with the philosophers of that day and sees them to be godly or, or religious people from religion, believing that there was some entity greater than all, some, some foundation to life as they knew it, but they didn't understand who that might be, what, what does Paul do? He takes them right back to the same place that John took his readers. He takes them back to creation. And he takes them back to that ultimate truth. And in fact, he quotes one of the poets of the day and says, in him we live and move and have our being. All of light is rooted in him. Now, he takes this, this secular piece of, of poetry and he applies it to Christ Himself. He draws them to the place of ultimate reality in Christ. This is a really critically important matter for the church, particularly in an age of of vain philosophy and a quest for answers that rules out some personal noble God and just sees some cosmic force behind the universe. In essence, John is saying to those who understood this term and and the implications of this term. Without Christ, there is no, no true faculty of reason. Without Christ, you will never be able to reason to final answers and first things. Without Christ, you will never be able to comprehend the deeper realities of life, this ultimate reality that was the pursuit of that pagan world and Greek philosophy. Without Christ, there is no life. In fact, there's no purpose to life under the sun. I heard the words of the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. There is no true purpose to life if there is no Christ, this this noble entity, this God of all creation. There is no ultimate reality. In fact, it results in in a nihilism. We, we, We live our life and then we're gone and nothing really matters, and that's our culture today. Without Christ, there is no true truth, as Francis Schaeffer spoke of it. 
You will hear all the time about truth, but there is really only one truth, capital T. Francis Schaeffer called it true truth, and that true truth is found in the Word. Written, that Word revealed, that Word spoken, that Word, our Savior Jesus Christ. And without Christ, there is no hope. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. As I look at this world today, we live in a very restless age, trying to still figure out the mysteries of life outside of God in some impersonal force, in some ultimate reality that's discoverable as long as we dig deep enough and search long enough. But in reality, the restlessness of man's heart will never achieve any sense of peace without truly understanding the nature of Logos, the second person of the Trinity, this Christ, the Son of the living God, and belief in His name. It was Augustine of Hippo, that theologian philosopher of that Middle Ages, who said, Thou hast made us for Yourself, O Lord and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in Thee. John writes in John chapter 1, I know what you're looking for. I know who He is. I know the source of your pursuit. I know the key to your understanding. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made, and in Him was life. And the life was the light of man. It opens their eyes to these great mysteries and points them in the direction that they need to go. Make no mistake, John knew who his audience was. He knew that they had a concept of this word or logos, and he is filling in the blanks and pointing them to Christ, this Christ as the light of men. As Christ is the light of men, he reminds us in verse 6 of the coming of John the Baptist who would herald and teach and point to that light. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about that light, and that all might believe through him. Now, that's a really important thing. This wasn't about John. It was about who he was pointing to, because verse 8 says he was not that light, John the Baptist, but came to bear witness about that light. But there's a phrase that he uses in verse 7 that's an important phrase, that all might believe through him. Notice that he doesn't say that all might believe in him. In essence, he's saying you will never know who to believe. You will never know what to believe. You will never find the ultimate source of reality unless that is revealed to you by the light of the Word, this, this God of light, the person of Jesus Christ and His, His atoning work. You will never be able to grasp that without Him. It must come. Belief must come through Him and belief placed in Him. Those are two separate things. We live in a world that, that somehow teaches us that, that if we believe it, it's true. But that's not the way this goes. There's one truth. It is one word. There is one way. 
And this truth, this understanding of life and its biggest questions comes only through the Scripture and the revelation of God, this logos or word, this God in the flesh, the light of man. The Bible tells us in verse 9 that it is the true light, juxtaposing it against all of those false lights and, and the errors of the way which lightens everyone coming into the world. Then it reminds us that He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. They refused to acknowledge Him. That's really important in our application this morning. As we understand the audience that John writes to and the things that he is pointing them to and, and directing them toward, he came into his own, verse 11, and his own people did not receive or acknowledge him. And then we find that great and precious promise to the children of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God drawing Himself to this light, or drawing people to this light, this Savior of the world. It is not something that comes by birthright. It is not something that comes by thinking and using our reasonable capacity. This must be revealed to us, thus the importance of the Word, the ultimate Word spoken, revealed to us. And the world became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's a lot going on in this text, and I don't want to repeat everything we spoke of on Friday. We don't have time to dig into every particular phrase, but John was pulling everything together for everybody in that culture, that he might point them to Christ and that they might have life through Him and Him alone. And he points out there are a particular group of people who receive through the work of Christ and believe in the person and, and accomplished work of Christ that are given this right. You don't earn it and achieve it. It's given to you to become the children of God. And that story begins when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the culmination of the prophecies of all times. There is a stark reality of contrast between those who live in darkness and those who live in light. We sang a Christmas carol this morning penned by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in 1863. It was a difficult and particularly challenging time for him. He had lost his wife, who was sealing envelopes back then by the wax of a candle, and her gown caught on fire, and she was burned horribly. And Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was, was burned as well. He couldn't even go to his wife's funeral, and she perished in that. It was toward the end of the Civil War, and he gets news from the front that his son Charles had been gravely wounded and would have to be nursed back to health. And that's how he pens these words, and in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, 
For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. As he looks around at his circumstances, as he looks around at life under the sun, he says, there is no peace. This makes no sense. In essence, there's nothing but pain and and discomfort in life. When you put that in perspective and when you understand what John is trying to communicate to, to those seeking for some ultimate reality, some sense of hope, some sense of promise, some sense of peace in a restless world, this is only found in this message of Christ. So he pens the verse, then rang the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, good will toward men. You see, the problem is we think that's today. If you're expecting peace today, you're going to be really disappointed. The problem is we don't look at this from the end of our existence. We don't look at this from an eternal perspective. We look at it very temporally. And when you do that, there's nothing but despair and brokenness. But when you're able to look beyond that, you begin to understand that the only hope that we have, that no one can take from us, including circumstances that are horrendous, is the hope that we have in Christ. And the fulfillment of all of that reality, when, when right or wrong is made right and the right prevails and there's finally peace on earth, points me to John's gospel where he reminds believers, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. It finally makes perfect sense. That is the promise to the children of God. These name and claim it portrayers of a false theology have done grave harm to the body of believers today. Life is not expected to be good. In fact, we are reminded that we are in a spiritual war, and as a result of that war, as a result of that conflict, there will be tribulation. And just as John bore witness uh, in an appointed time to that light of Jesus, we too have a responsibility to bear witness to that light. Jesus Himself says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And in the midst of all this complexity and deep truth and theology of John chapter 1, it makes it crystal clear that that message must go out, and somehow it must impact us in its most deepest form. But in bearing witness to this light, I've seen a grave tragedy over the course of my life and ministry that seems to be multiplying at a tremendous rate today. I see it in families who somehow think that we must teach our children or treat our children in ways different than our parents raised us, because after all, the world is changing. But I suggest to you that ultimate reality never changes. And it's a grave mistake to change how we raise our children, to change how we deal with our children, to change our expectations of ethics and morality with our children because they live in such a different world. Because if we have the light, 
We must bear witness of that light, and we must somehow communicate to our children and our families that some things never change. Churches make the same mistake. We get caught up in all of these changes in the world, and we think we have to cater or change our ministry philosophy and our ministry methodology to reach a world that, that no longer understands. The truth is, you can't reach this world, and I can't reach this world, but we can tell them the truth. And the light of men will lead them to the truth. When we change our methodology in our churches and bearing witness to cater to the culture, the message becomes gutted and, and no longer is this a, a message of ultimate reality and foundations. It is this malleable, culturally relevant kind of message that changes from generation to generation, and that is a dead end. We must be very careful that we don't change what we're doing and alter the message. And some say, well, don't we have to be aware of the culture? Of course you do. But being aware of the culture and changing the way we reach that culture is fool's gold. That culture can only be reached by the light of men who gives life and fills in the blanks for the ultimate realities of life. You know, sometimes, bearing witness of the light, even in our hearts, we, we drift a little bit. Our lives become segmented and compartmentalized, and do we believe that Jesus is life? That's all-encompassing. He's, in, he's interested in every aspect of our life, every part of our life, every relationship in our life, every thought in our life, every, every longing of the heart in our lives. He is interested in absolutely everything about our being, and He wants to mold that and shape that as the Word, the Word that fills in the blanks and grants us hope. And somehow, unless we can grasp that through the light of the world and not be distracted by changing everything according to the culture, how will we ever deal with a world that does not know Him? There's some people who believe that you can spread the gospel without speaking words. That is a pernicious lie. The gospel is words. It is the Word, the revealed Word, the written Word, the revelation of that Word in Jesus Christ, and words matter. Yet at the same time, it matters that that Word is a part of our living faith to a world that does not know. So what are we up against in our families? What are we up against in our churches? And what are we up against in our own personal battles and in this world that doesn't, doesn't know Him? To those who won't acknowledge Him, to those who are still searching. You know, as I reflected on this a little bit over the last couple of weeks, there are three types of people that we deal with, both in our family, in our churches, and in the world at large. There's a world that doesn't know Him because of ignorance. They're uneducated, and they're unaware, they're uninformed. They don't even know what we're talking about. There's no longer this haunting of a Judeo-Christian ethos, no, no understanding of even the story of Christmas in its most simplest form. 
For those who are overtaken by, by ignorance, I'm reminded of what Paul says in Romans, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he asks some really important questions. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they ever going to know if we don't tell them in the beginning was the Word, the spoken Word, the written Word, the revelatory Word in Jesus Christ that is always the answer even for the ignorance. But in our world today, not only are there those who are held captive by ignorance, there are those who are held captive by belligerence. I wonder in in some sense if we're living in an age of belligerence. Well, there's a hostile, almost warlike attitude, inclination towards the things of truth, true truth that never changes, that is not somehow malleable to the culture and, and to our own personal whims. I don't expect everyone to love you when you go and tell them that truth, but you must say it clearly and plainly in the context of the culture, as John did in this evangelistic book that he writes. The battle that we're fighting is described for us in Romans chapter 1. In spite of the fact that His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, has been so clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made in creation, we see the Word there without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This world that does not know Him is sometimes an ignorant word, and yet oftentimes they're a belligerent world. For clearly, God is visible, but they choose not to acknowledge Him. We kind of run away from those people. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to reason with them, so we just kind of discard them as those who don't want to hear. But if indeed we understand the concept of word, they do need to hear. We must fill in the blanks. We must give them the source of life. We, we must let the light of the world shine upon them. And the only way to do that is to tell them the truth, not to cater to their fancy, not to bend the truth for their own particular thought or whim or lifestyle, but to simply tell the truth. And let's stop being shocked that they don't like the truth. We're living in a belligerent age. They will never like the truth, and they will refuse to acknowledge the Word. But if we believe that in that Word is life, if we believe that in that Word is ultimate reality, if we believe that God, through Jesus Christ, is the answer to all the perplexing questions of life, if we truly believe that hope is only in that Word, how can we stay silent? So in spite of all of their objections, we simply must tell them the truth. And whether they choose to acknowledge or choose not to acknowledge, that's, that's not our fight. That is the light of the world, the light of men. That, that's God's challenge to address. We must tell them the truth. Sometimes the world doesn't know Him because of ignorance and sometimes belligerence. 
but all the time from Genesis chapter 3. The world is antagonistic towards this word, hostile, actively resisting and opposing and fighting against. Are you surprised? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done all to stand. The world lives in darkness, and darkness hates life. And there is a cosmic force antagonistic towards the message of the truth of John's gospel. But the gospel shines as a light into a very dark world, and according to the will of God, some are rescued from that darkness. Sometimes at Christmas, I've made the tragic error of becoming or making this so personal that it's only about me and my Savior, and I fail to understand that He is light of the whole world. And I understand all the objections and the complexities of making such an argument, but that's the language of the text. He's revealed Himself to this world. They do not know Him, but I am here for a reason and a purpose. And that reason and purpose is to know Him and to share that knowledge, that word, that spoken word, the culture that is growing to despise that word. But to all who did receive Him, to them gave He and believed in His name. To them gave He the right to become the children of God. We're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And there's the paradox for me. This Christmas celebration is deeply personal to me because at a point in my life, I saw the light of men. I realized that life was in Christ and in Christ alone. I, I understood only scratching the surface perhaps, but I understood the context of, of John's evangelistic gospel. And I saw the light that shines in darkness, and God drew me to that light in Jesus Christ and radically changed my life. He gave me the right to receive. He gave me the ability to believe. He gave me, overwhelmingly gave me, the high position of authority, or through His high position of authority, the right to become one, one of His children. When I read this Gospel of John, chapter 1, I then begin to wonder about the world that does not know Him and where do my responsibilities lie there. Is this Jesus the source of ultimate reality? Or have we so compartmentalized this that Jesus is good for Sunday, but Monday going to have to trust my intellect and my education and my philosophy. And is he enough? He's always enough. And that's why John is writing to those who, for all the right reasons, were pursuing the answers to the deepest questions, but did not know him. 
message of Christmas, the announcement to the world, the evangelist John draws all attention to the light of men, to the light of the world, the Son of God. We sing this song each Christmas season. The Son of God here born to bleed, a crown of thorns would pierce His brow. We beheld this offering, exalted now the King of kings. Praise God for the hallowed manger ground. There's so much to that. Such a depth of wisdom in John chapter 1. Do you know Him? And are you declaring Him to a lost and dying world? For in Him is life, and He is the light of men. Is this your testimony? And you, who were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, in which we all carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like everyone else, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of His great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Him, with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is the testimony of the believer who has seen the light of men and have come to know the light of the world, Jesus. God did that. May that move you to a deep sense of reverence and worship in this season of Christmas. But may we never forget the rest of the world that doesn't know Him. And may we live our lives and pro- proclaim this Word in such a way that God can work through us in our families and in our churches and our personal lives, and then trust the light of men to draw people to Himself. May you know Him, the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being made conformable to His death, even by death on a cross. May this Christmas season take you deeper and connect you deeper to this Word that became flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and our Savior. Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Take us past the simplicity that sometimes we get bogged down in, to see the bigger picture and to understand what it means in the course of life, the course of the world in which we live. May it so permeate every aspect of our being that that word revealed to us in the Scriptures is on our lips. That Word revealed in Christ has become Lord of every aspect of our life, and that Word that screams 
into a dark world and rescues. Find a ripe place of worship and acclamation and proclaim in the season of Christmas. May we be your agents ministering in a dark world, and may we never change to conform to the culture, but be forever changed by the light of the world that others might know until the day we see you and become like you, a day that most of us long for in a greater way every day this cloud of darkness gets greater and greater. We praise our King and the message of John and the hope of salvation in this Christmas season changes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.